You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. encourage the places that are weary and build up the places that are tired, that you'd confront the areas in us that still pull wayward, that you might, as our scripture we read earlier, that you might sanctify us even as you see us perfected in Christ. Help us as we go to your word, as we open up Psalm 33 this morning. Build up your church and encourage your people for your glory and for our good, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Sorry, I'll fix this microphone. It's a little wonky. We like technology sometimes, but not always. Um, Good morning. We're looking at Psalm 33 today, so you can go ahead and grab your Bibles. And turn there, Psalm 33, if you need a copy of God's Word, some folks are coming around, um, and they can put one in your hands. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of these uh, today as just a gift. We'd love for you to have your own. Um, And as you're finding your way to Psalm 33, let me give you a little background on the context. Psalm 33, uh, you'll note, if if you look at your Bibles, um, usually in our Bibles, the little bolded title over a psalm is not in the original text. It's, It's an editorial or a translation uh, help, if you will, uh, to, to give you maybe the general theme of this psalm. Usually, when you look at a psalm and you see kind of the italicized words above, like verse 1, that original title, a psalm of David, a, a mitkam, or, you know, to the choir master, those sorts of things are in the psalm text that we have. This psalm, 33, does not have a title. It's title-less, um, which is interesting. Um, this is one of four psalms in this first book, 1 through 41, of the psalms that doesn't have one. Most of them do. Now, it's possible that Psalm 33 was at one time connected to Psalm 32, and so it was separated out between them. That's possible. It's possible they could have just been used together very often, uh, 32 and 33 together. Um, Because you'll even see at the end of 32, the Psalm 32 ends with and shout for joy, O you upright in heart. And Psalm 33 starts, shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. It's almost a word-for-word copy. So at the very least, while we don't know why it doesn't have a title, it's not attributed to any particular author, David or someone else, there is this continuation. So if Psalm 32, which Marty preached on last week, is about forgiveness, and the response to the forgiveness of God is praise, which is where Marty left us last week, which was really good for my heart, reminding me to praise, then Psalm 33 kind of picks up that that praise theme and draws a a line, if you will, from praise to hope. It starts with forgiveness in Psalm 32, that in, in Christ we can be forgiven, which leads us to praise, and praise then leads us to real and lasting hope. A New Testament parallel might be found in a place like Romans chapter 5. Let me just, I put it on the screen. Let me just give you a little bit of it. Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5 says this. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, 
Justification being made right before God, which comes to us who have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. Because we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God, which Marty talked about last week, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Basically, we have full access to all of God's grace. And then Paul writes, and we rejoice, there's that praise word, in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, he says, but we rejoice in our sufferings, which is a whole other layer of rejoicing. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, which is what we'll get to in Psalm 33. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's word has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given to us. So, if you'd like this week to do a little side-by-side reading on your own, take Romans 5, 1 through 5, and Psalm 33, and read them over the top of each other. In many ways... I, I see Paul is, is giving a little mini synopsis of Psalm 32 and 33 in these five verses of Romans. Or to say it another way, Romans 5, 1 through 5 is a, is a little bit of a mini, uh, uh, sorry, the other way around. Psalm 22 and Psalm 32 and 33 is a larger form commentary on Paul's writing, <laughs> Romans chapter 5, 1 through 5. So read them together. And here's the reality. Here's why I think we can read it this way. It's unpacking the beautiful reality of hope. The biblical idea and definition of hope, which I would argue is desperately needed, not only in the world in which we live, but personally for each of us. So let's read our text today, Psalm 33. That was a long introduction. Psalm 33, we're going to read the whole thing, verses 1 through 22, and then we'll dive into it. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Psalm 33, starting in verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Verse 8. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded And it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel, excuse me, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, for by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope 
in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, I made the assertion that we are in need of legitimate hope. I, I do think in, in so many ways, not just this cultural moment, but, but partly our human condition that is uh, made worse by our cultural moment, an epidemic of hopelessness. According to at least one national survey of adults in the United States only, 36% of people reported serious loneliness, which is described as a feeling of, f- of being lonely frequently, almost all of the time, or all of the time. Amongst mothers with young children, that number jumps to 51%. And amongst young adults ages 18 to 25, 61%. The most technologically advanced and social media connected generation in the history of humanity is the most lonely. Now, this made worse for sure by a global pandemic, the C word, right? According to a recent CDC survey, among those uh, age 18 to 25, there is a 63% rate of suffering from anxiety and depression amongst 18 to 25-year-olds, according to a recent CDC survey. To take this one step further, and this isn't the only stat to look at, but it is a staggering one. In the United States... There is one death every 11 minutes by suicide in the United States. In 2020, there were, at least that were reported in 2020, 12.2 million people who reported seriously thinking about taking their own life, 3.2 million people planned an attempt, 1.2 million people attempted it. It was in the top nine of leading causes of death for all people ages 10 to 64. Top 10. And it was the second leading cause of death for ages people 10 to 34. I don't think it's a stretch to say there's an epidemic of hopelessness. Well, what's the cure, right? I I think about it in these terms. If you have a nutritional deficiency, right? Say you're on a boat for, for many, many, many months. You get scurvy. What do you need? An orange, right? You have a deficiency, you get more of that thing that you need, and I, and I think in this case, well, it's not a fix-all, and it's not a happy band-aid, but I think Psalm 33 is giving us a real picture of legitimate hope for us. Here, here's the definition I want to work with. In the Old Testament, the words often translated in English to, to hope, that we read as, as hope, more often than not, that word we read as hope has connotations and is tied to the word trust. In the New Testament, it is hope that is often encouraged in the midst of hardship. So in the New Testament, not only is it tied to trust, but it's tied to endurance, like lasting, perseverance. So there is something trustworthy to hold on to. You can persevere, you can hang on, if you have something solid to anchor to, an expectation, a guarantee. 
That, I think, gives us a little clear picture of hope. It's not just a generic, I hope. Eh? It's like, no, no, I have hope in something. I can anchor to it. It's going to hold me. That's kind of the picture thing. And I think that's a needful thing for us as it relates to the hopelessness we see and experience in our own lives. So the question is, how do we recover this hope that we need that is lost? Now, Psalm 33 just starts with, shout for joy. (laughs) Praise. So I think the arc of this psalm this morning is that praise points to hope. How do we recover hope? Our hope is renewed as we praise God for His providence and His steadfast love. Our hope is renewed as we praise God for His providence and His steadfast love. We trust that God in His sovereign care loves us and He is full of that kind of steadfast love. So that's how we're going to look at the text. Verses 1 through 3, pick up where Psalm 32 left off. There's this command to praise the Lord, so we'll look at praise. And then the psalm ends, verses 20 through 22, with this declaration of hope. And in the middle, verses 4 through 20 or 19 or so, is this back and forth play between an expression of trusting God's providence, which we'll get to, and his steadfast love. His providence, his sovereign rule and reign over all things, and his steadfast love, his faithfulness, his patience, his care for his people. Praise points to hope, and the path to hope hinges on the providence and steadfast love of God. So that's how we're going to look at it. So let's look first at this call to praise. Verse 1 of Psalm 33. I almost feel like this psalm should be read with, by like James Earl Jones and not me. Like when he, especially when he gets into the middle section. But even at the beginning, right? Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Essentially saying, O righteous ones, O ones who belong to Jesus, praise and worship looks good on you. You ever think about that? You find a piece of clothing that you really like, one that fits you well, you feel good when you wear it, you look good when you wear it, it befits you. Psalm 33 says, praise befits the righteous. Worship looks good. It fits right on the one who has faith in God. Verse 2, give thanks with the lyre, make melody on the harp. Now, we don't have harps and lyre, it's just a stringed instrument this morning. We've got guitars and piano and drums. I offered up the banjo, no one wants to play it. If anyone plays the banjo, let me know I have one. I don't play it, but you can but I have one. Right? What, what are they saying there? You're giving thanks to God when you're using the things that He gives you for His glory in worship to Him. When God gifts you or makes you good at something and you turn that back and say, I'm going to do this thing and offer it back to God in praise to God, you are worshiping Him with that. Verse 3, sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. This new song is a fresh song. The praise of God must never get stale because God's mercy is new every morning and He's worth praising with fresh thanksgiving every morning. Because every morning there's new mercy. You woke up this morning? While God does not change, His mercy for you is new and inexhaustible today. 
And you might have a terrible day, and you go to sleep tonight, and you wake up tomorrow, guess whose mercy is new and inexhaustible? Is he worth praising, right? He doesn't change, and yet he's always good, and we cannot praise him enough. This is a call to praise. Now, sometimes we skip past these first few verses in a psalm like this because we think, I sing, I'm here on Sunday, aren't I? I was singing just now. But often our praise is kind of weak. And I'm not picking on you. I'm talking about myself too. Maybe we feel tired or burdened and sometimes it's hard to sing. It's hard to shout. Maybe we feel like, you know, I'm just not that loud of a person. I, I don't raise my hands. I'm not Gregorius. I'm Norwegian. Or maybe German. You can be German. Right? We have feelings, but we don't share them with people. We don't let people know that. Can I just say, these are some of the hindrances that Psalm 33 is kind of gently pressing on for us. See, praise speaks to what we are sure of. Praise has to do with trust. We don't praise God based on how we feel in our circumstances. We praise God based on what we know to be true about Him. There are many Sundays when I come in, and you probably come in on a Sunday to a place like this, and you feel burdened or tired or life's a mess. And that's reality. It could be something as simple as maybe you just didn't get enough sleep this week. Or, or maybe it's because I had a disagreement with my wife 10 minutes before leaving the house. Or I was short with the kids like, about something silly like breakfast cereal or brushing your hair. Because parents sometimes get worked up over dumb stuff. Right? Someone cuts me off on the way to church. There's like eight cars on the road and I just happen to be behind the one going 10 right? But, if, but I can't just praise God based on how I'm feeling. My feelings are fickle. Praise for God must be based on what I know to be true about who God is. And Psalm 33 is just beckoning us in saying, I know you might feel a bit hopeless. The road to hope begins here. Shout for joy in the Lord because praise befits you. Because this is who you are now. And what do we praise Him for? Well, there are many things about God, both who He is and what He's done, which demand our worship. Psalm 33 outlines two of them. That's what I want to focus on today. Our second idea, God's providence and His steadfast love. His providence and His steadfast love. And it's kind of broken up into different sections here. Um, we'll look at each of them in the middle of this sandwich of praise and hope sandwich, this providence and steadfast love is shown in many ways. Verses 4 and 5 speak of God's word and his work. The word of the Lord, Yahweh, is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. This picture is one of perfection. God spoke the cosmos into existence by his word. The Apostle Paul closes his first letter to the church in Thessalonica this way. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, totally make you new completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless, pure and perfect, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. So the one who has called you is faithful. He will surely do it. He who calls you by his own word is faithful. He will accomplish all he has set out 
to do. Everything he says, he will do with all faithfulness. In the cosmos, in the universe, and in your life. God's word is upright. It is true. It is perfect. And all his work is done in faithfulness. And verse 5 adds to our understanding of God's work and his character. He loves, the psalm says, loves righteousness and justice. The opposite of that meaning he hates wickedness and injustice. He loves righteousness, what is right, and justice. For he himself is both completely righteous and just. And the earth, the psalmist says, is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That phrase, steadfast love, that we find in our psalms a couple places today, is the Hebrew word chesed. Trying to get my Hebrew pronunciation proper. I may have gotten it wrong. I think I'm close. And it's becoming, quickly becoming, one of my favorite Hebrew words that I come across in God's word. It means loyal kind, and steadfast, patient love. It almost speaks to gracious obligation. Here's, let me explain. God, in his perfection, in his righteousness, in his total goodness, obligates himself to love his covenant people. He holds himself, because he is good and righteous, to his own covenant, obligation, if you will. He's the only one who could obligate himself to anything because he's God, because he cannot lie and he always does what is right. He has said, this is the commitment I have made to love my people this way, and I will keep it forever. So we praise God for his word and his work. Everything he says is faithful, and everything he does is faithful. And it's out of an abundance of his love for his people. Loyal love. Speaks to God's work, his word and his work. Verses 6 through 12 speak to God's creation and his care for it. In power, he created everything by his word. Verse 7. The heavens were made by God's word. Verse 7, and he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. As Josh prayed earlier, one of the pictures of this would immediately have come to mind for God's people is how God stops up the waters of the Red Sea or of the Jordan when he's rescuing his people from bondage. He gathers them up. Who can gather up water? Without a bucket, can you pick it up? See, here's a funny thing about this phrase, gathers the waters into a heap, which just reminds us of God's bigness, if I can say it that way, or his otherness, and, and our smallness. We know more about our, this, our solar system and the planets and our own solar system than we really do about the deepest parts of the ocean. I think I've said that before, because every time I come across uh, the scriptures speaking of the deeps of the sea, I'm amazed again. At a thousand meters below the surface of the ocean, uh, visible light is no longer, no longer penetrates. At about 4,000 meters, the water is near freezing and it's called the abyssal zone. That's a fun place to go. Abyssal. 
The Manila Trench in South, the South China Sea has a low point of about 5,400 meters. Just perspective. At 6,000 meters, you reach the Hadal Zone. I think I'm pronouncing that properly. And more people have been to the moon than have been to the Hadal Zone of the ocean. At 10,924 meters, that's 35,839 feet for all of you people who don't use the metric system. You reach the deepest part of the ocean, or so we think. The Challenger Deep. And Psalm 33 says, He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap, and He puts the deep in storehouses. We know nothing. And the picture here, the more we know, think about how, much, how deep the Old Testament writers thought the sea was. And how much more we know. And how much bigger God is from our perspective. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and he puts the deep in storehouses. Verse 8. In light of this, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Adds some color, doesn't it? Verse 9. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. God created it all, and he sits providentially over all creation. Verses 10 and 11, he didn't just create it all, but he remains Lord over it all. His counsel and his plans stand forever and cannot be thwarted by the plans of nations or men. Think about that. God's purposes stand forever and cannot be undone. This is a sobering reminder for every city hall, every group of legislators at the state or federal level, or every country in the world, every boardroom, every shareholders meeting, and for each of us as we open up our weekly calendar to go, what am I going to do this week? We start building out our to-do lists. God's counsel and his plans stand firm forever and cannot be thwarted. Now, it's not to not plan. I'm not saying don't plan stuff. What I am saying is this. We acknowledge that all of our best strategy and planning, at whatever level it is, personally or in your job, or if you have greater responsibilities than that, all of our plans sit underneath the powerful and providential plans of God whose counsel and plans stand forever. Verse 12 Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. What a blessing to have my plans hidden safely in the plans of the one whose plans cannot fail. God's power and his blessing, his providence and the evidence of his steadfast love. His creation, his rule and reign over creation. Verses 13 through 19 speak to God's rule and reign. See how these all kind of tie together? I was going to make a Venn diagram where they all overlap, but then everyone on the staff would have laughed at me because I like Venn diagrams, so I opted not for the Venn diagram because I care about their opinions of me. Verse, <laughs> verse 13 speaks to God's rule and reign. God looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of men, all the inhabitants of the earth from where he sits enthroned. That word enthroned is another really great word. It means exactly what it sounds like. He is the king on a throne. He sits in authority 
and dwells there as sovereign. Nobody moves him off his chair. He sees all and he knows us because he made us. He made your heart so he knows your heart. And we're reminded that misplaced trust does not lead to salvation. It doesn't lead to hope. Look at verses 16 and 17. After we get this picture that God sits enthroned, rules and reigns over all creation, rules and reigns over every nation, rules and reigns over every single one of our plans, then the psalmist says this, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Now I read a passage like this and I say, well yeah, but it can't hurt, right? Like having a strong army is a like better than having a weak army. I would rather have a strong horse than a you know, mule. At least if I'm going off to war, if I'm plowing a field, maybe I want the donkey. But the point is, like it, it can't hurt, right? Being strong versus being weak. We're not advocating being weak. But here's the idea. Ultimately, ultimately, at the top, the trust is not in the army. The trust is not in our own strength. The trust is not in the horse, but in the one who made the soldiers, the one who created the horse, the one who made bodies made up of bones and muscle. Verse 18, behold, consider, look, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. There's that word again. That he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. Here's the, the main part of this here. The Lord, it's the Lord, not the army, that delivers the king and the country. It's actually God who does that. He might use the army, but it's God who does that. It's the Lord who feeds the hungry and the needy. Now, he might feed the hungry and the needy from the canned goods in your cellar or basement, but it's the Lord who does that, Psalm 33 says. In his providence, the Lord sees and watches all things, and he acts according to his loyal, steadfast love for his people and will accomplish everything that he intends to accomplish. We praise God for his providence and his steadfast love. Because we believe his word and his work are perfect and faithful and always good, because we believe that he is powerful that if he speaks all things into existence, then surely he knows me even better than I know myself. And we believe that because he knows us, and because he cares for us, that his rule and his reign as king over the universe is a rule of a good king who delights to care for his people. We believe in and hope in and trust that God's love for us is steadfast and loyal and sure, and when we praise God for these things, it's a sign that we are moving from hopelessness to hope. And that's the last part of our text this morning. Hope. Look at verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. And then the request. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The Apostle John wrote in John 1, 
this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. And without Him, not anything made, excuse me, was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. A little bit later in verse 14, John concludes this thought. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word of God, the Logos of God, made flesh, the good and powerful and righteous Word of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul writes to the Christians in the city of Colossae, this hymn, if you will, about Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created. Sounds a little bit like what John just said. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The providence and steadfast love of God on display in the person of Jesus. So when we see it in other places around us, or when we experience hopelessness ourselves, let's be courageous enough to ask the question, what am I trusting in right now? Am I trusting in a change in circumstance? Or am I trusting in the God who does not change? Am I trusting in a new plan or creative way to envision my life and order my time and execute? Or am I trusting in the God who sits enthroned over all things? The one who knows me and sees me and holds all things together. Even the pieces of my tiny broken life. And holds together even the minutes in my frantic days. Am I trusting in a new job or a new relationship or a new president or a new personal goal? Where is my trust? Is it in the one who can and has delivered my soul from death? The one who can keep me alive? even in a time of famine. After Paul makes this grand, paints this grand picture of Jesus in Colossians, he closes the last few verses uh, of chapter 1 like this. And you, this is who Jesus is, and he goes, and you, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He's speaking to you, and he's speaking to me. See, I'm not proposing a band-aid to grief and suffering and hardship. What I am saying is this. That a huge missing component to the epidemic of hopelessness is this element of praise. We don't only hope that what is hard gets easier. 
or what is bad gets better. Our hope is in the God who is over our circumstances, who sees us and knows us and loves us with a steadfast love. We don't put hope in our ability or our creativity, but our hope is in the God who accomplishes all of his plans in the cosmos and in our community and on my calendar. And he does so with faithfulness for his glory and for my good, as odd as that might seem to me at the time, because he loves me with a steadfast love. So, so I, know, I not only want to give us this morning permission to praise, But if I can, a challenge, a challenge to praise God with passion and with purpose. Not to fake it, but to see your praise as an expression of your hope in Him. That we can together move toward hope as we praise God for all who He is and all that He's done. Knowing that He will do all that He has promised to do. We do this individually and we do this together. So let's move towards hope together as we make this good confession in our songs. As we praise our good God who sits enthroned in providence and power and who sovereignly loves his children with a steadfast and immovable and loyal love. Amen? Just pray with me. Father, we confess we don't often jump right into shouts of joy. And yet your goodness, just for who you are, demands it. And then when we take into account all that you have done, well, Father, I I pray you'd soften the parts of our hearts that are a little hard. And that you'd carefully tend to and gather up the parts of us that are just wrecked and broken and melted. That you'd enable your church, your people, to praise you in the midst of joy and in the midst of sorrow, in the midst of great hope, in the midst of great pain. That you'd work in us by your Holy Spirit to, to praise you, that you would in your kindness, move us towards a declaration of hope and trust in you. Thank you for the tangible reminder of your steadfast love in the person of Jesus. In particular, as we come to the table, love and justice and mercy on display in his sacrificial death for us. That we are partakers, that we get to be a part of that. Would you overwhelm us with your goodness? Would you stir our hearts to praise your name? It's in that name we pray. Amen.